Well, we're continuing our lessons in Christology, and then uh, we will we will look at. Um, well, first off, let me give you a a uh, summary of what we have been considering. We've been looking at union with Christ and the various uh, blessings that we receive from union with Christ. Uh, we saw the blessings of justification, sanctification, adoption. Uh, last two weeks we looked at we looked at glorification and those things being things that flow from our union with Christ. Those things flowing from our union with Christ. That is to say, because we're united to Christ, we receive justification, adoption, sanctification, and all these wonderful, wonderful truths and um, blessings. But what we want to talk about this afternoon um, is definitely a topic that is near and dear to my own heart, uh, and it has been for the history of the church concerning salvation. When we talk about union with Christ, last two weeks, uh, two weeks ago, we talked about what is the end by which we are united to Jesus Christ, and the end is going to be glorification, glorification. Us being glorified. Um, that is the, the telos, the end goal, the end game of us being saved. But the way the, the Christian church has appropriated and talked about glorification, right, um, has been a way in which we, the Reformed Church, have lost um, throughout the years. Let me ask you a question, saints. What was the motive... Of the incarnation. What was the motive of the incarnation? Or we can say, what was the reason why the triune God decreed to send the eternal son to save man? For what purpose? For what was the purpose of the eternal son coming to save man? And, well, the answer might be in the question itself, right? Well, the purpose was, and many people might say this, the purpose was, for us to be saved. The purpose for the eternal son to assume human flesh was for us to be saved. Um, and that's not a bad answer. Or you might say the purpose for the eternal son to assume human flesh, right, was so that we can have a right standing before God, which is this forensic legal declaration we know as justification. So we stand before God, and God looks at us like he looks at his son. But even saying that, though, implies much more than just a forensic declaration. <clears throat> so then, we have to consider, what was the reason for the incarnation? What was the reason for the incarnation? Consider what Athanasius says, the great church father in the 4th century. If you were to ask Athanasius, Athanasius, what was the reason for the incarnation? What was the reason why the eternal son became man? This is what he would say. For the son of God became man so that we might become God. Now let that just sink in. Now that's far different than how we would answer the question of why the eternal son became man. Is it not? Far different. Again, for the Son of God became man so that we might become God. Now, upon hearing that, immediately, it should sound strange and highly heretical. Just that phrase there. 
right? Like the great Athanasian father, right? Uh, Athanasius, who, who took, who took on the Arians, um, um, and, and, and did all these great things for the church in defending the deity of, the, of Christ. This one is saying that the eternal son became man so that man may become God. Does not, does not Athanasius, the one who defends the deity of the son, the one who says that this son is not begotten in the same way that creatures are begotten. This one, Athanasius, does he not know what he's saying? We have to ask that question, right? Now, the problem, of course, is not that God became man. Um, we'll leave that to a side, right? If you want to say that's a problem. But the problem in what Athanasius is saying is those last words, so that we might become God. So that we might become God. Um, let me just throw a little bit more fire to our wood to the fire. Clement of Alexandria, writing between 150 and 215 AD. Yeah, I say the word of God became a man so that you might learn from a man how to become a God. If one knows himself, he will know God. And knowing God will become like God. Justin Martyr writing in between 100 and 165 AD. In the beginning, men were made like God, free from suffering and death. And now we are deemed worthy of becoming gods and having a power to become sons of the highest. And in the great Augustine of Hippo, writing between 354 and 403 AD, but he himself that justifies also deifies. For by justifying, he makes sons of God. If then he been made sons of God, we also have been made gods. And I can multiply quotes from various church fathers that speak of this idea of the eternal son becoming man so that man may be like God. That is the motive of the incarnation, loosely speaking motive, right? Because God doesn't undergo motives. But that is the reason for the incarnation. That is the reason why the eternal son became man, so that, according to the church fathers and medieval theologians and the reformed tradition, so that man may become God. Not just a right standing before God, which we do need, but what's implied in the right standing is what's called deification. We want to examine this glorious doctrine this afternoon of deification. Um, and I already know from the outset in your mind, you might be thinking, what in the world am I talking about? <laughs> what in the world were the church fathers uh, talking about? But stay with me. And I'm not saying also, saints, that we should retrieve everything that the early church said, the medieval theologians said, or even some of what the reformed, uh, our reformed forebearers said. However, what I am saying, though, if, if, if there is a consensus amongst men that speak to a doctrine just as much as they speak to the divinity of the Son or to the triunity of God, then we must take serious what these men are saying concerning a particular doctrine. <clears throat> Let me give you a formal definition of deification. What's deification? Deification is that doctrine that teaches man by grace insofar as humanly possible, may be so elevated to be like God. Again, deification is that doctrine that teaches man by grace, 
insofar as humanly possible, may be so elevated to be like God. To be like God. The history of the church has um, defended this and affirmed this. You find deification and this language of what's theosis, deification, um, divinization, all used interchangeably. You find it a lot in the Eastern tradition, that is the Eastern Orthodox churches. They all are, the big craze in that tradition is deification. You also find it in the Roman Catholic tradition. You also find it in the Lutheran tradition. Martin Luther spoke very frequently, of, especially in his Galatian commentary, on deification. But you also find deification amongst even Reformed Baptists. I have quotes here. I can send it to you later. Um, but you find in you find in John Gill, Benjamin Keith, you find in these men, they affirming that which the early church taught, that the eternal son became man so that in order that man may become God or be like God. Let's first answer deification by what it doesn't mean, which is honestly it does the heaviest lifting for us because when we when we consider deification, immediately we must consider, and I'm sure you want to know, okay, what it, what what doesn't it mean? What did the, what did the church fathers didn't mean when they spoke about men becoming like God? <clears throat> First of all, deification of the church fathers didn't mean that we become God. That we become God. That's off the bat. I mean, it, it would, it would, it would, it would, um, it would, uh, it would seem highly weird that the ones who we derive, honestly, the church fathers, um, 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 the best way to articulate the doctrine of God, it would seem weird, right? That they would also affirm in the same breath that man may become God, a God, like God, or, uh, uh, of, of very God, of very God. More specifically, um, man does not have the potency in of himself to be like God or be God rather by nature. By nature. And we're going to unpack this in a, in a little bit. But you do not have within yourself the ability, the capability, the potency within you to be like God or be God with respect to God's nature. If you would, then you would have to also affirm evolution. Evolution teaches us, specifically Darwinian evolution teaches us, that a specific, a, a genus of a species turns into a different type of genus. Turns into a different thing. So deification doesn't mean that one thing becomes another thing. That's not what deification teaches. Also, deification is not teaching that we will become literally God, like the Mormons believe, and we will be able to have, you know, sexual relations with a female God and then create another Jesus. That's what Mormons teach, that you can be so elevated to a point where you will have your own planet, sit on the divine council and be able to produce little Jesuses. That's not what deification is talking about. Lastly, also, deification is not how the Egyptian pharaohs used to think of how when they died, um, upon death, 
the pharaohs would become God. Literally God. That's not what deification is saying. The church fathers and the Christian tradition never said that we will become literally God. We will never become literally God. But what it's saying is that man becomes like God by grace. So we become like God, not by nature, but we become like God by grace. We become like God by grace. Or we can say man becomes God by nature, not by grace. And the difference here, saints, lies in the difference lies in the difference between what is essential and what is derived. What is essential and what is derived. And the way in which the church has spoken of this difference is by using a word called participation. Participation. Now, what does participation, uh, participation mean? Participation finds its origin. It's a philosophical term. comes from Plato, Aristotle, um, also from the Neoplatonists. The Christian tradition learned of this word and they appropriated it. They appropriated it to talk about really the relationship between God and the creaturely order. Between God and the creaturely order. Now, there's two senses of the word participation. The first sense is described how different particulars all share some common elements. So let me give you an example. We all are human persons. However, I'm not you and you are not me. But there is something, there's a commonality between all of us, which is what? Our nature. We all share that common nature, which is humanity. So although we are different particulars, right, I'm a particular person as opposed to you, we all share of one common essence, which is humanity. Humanity. So we can say that all of us partake of a common humanity. We all participate in a common humanity. Secondly, the concept of participation was used to describe the unequal relationship between what is essential and what is derived. Again, unequal relationship between what is essential and what is derived. Let me give you another example. If a king is understood to have authority in and of himself, then the first minister then would participate in the king's authority. The king has essentially authority. The minister then, who shares right, who's in his court, shares, participates in the king's authority. So the king and the minister then, they remain distinct persons while the minister participates in the king's authority. The minister never becomes the king himself. He remains distinct from the king, um, but shares in the king's authority. So we can say that the thing that participates or we can say the participant depends on whom it derives its participation from. The participant depends on the one whom it derives its participation from. This is all going to become clear to you in just for a moment. But this is important because if participation means that something becomes another thing, right? So if the minister participates in the king's authority, insofar as the minister actually becomes the king himself, then can we say that the minister is participating in the king's authority? No, we can't. Because he's actually now become the thing that he's participating in. And saints, this concept of participation 
is what we read in God's word. This is why the church appropriated what Aristotle and Plato were saying. Acts 17, 28. Paul says, for in him we live and move and exist, have our being. In him we live and move and exist. We have our being. In God's being, then, we exist. Because God is being itself, essentially, he gives to us being, we derive that being from God, and we participate in God's being. Because he is being itself. How else will we make sense of this then? In him we move, live, and, and exist. <clears throat> what Paul is saying is without becoming God, we participate in God's being. For since God is the source of all being. God is the source of all being. Um, so, this word participation then. Uh does a lot of heavy lifting for us. It really does. Because what it does is it helps us safeguard the, the one thing that we all want to safeguard, and that is the creator-creature distinction. Right? This this wide chasm that exists, exists between us and who God is. And whatever we say about the creaturely order, we must take into consideration this distinction between us and who God is. So what participation tells us is that we can participate in a thing without actually becoming the thing. Let me give you a, a, a rough summary. We participate in a thing without actually becoming the thing itself. This then gets us into the discussion of nature and grace. Nature and grace. Friends, think of who you are. Think of, of who you are. Um, Antonio this morning asked... Are asked, uh, th- what are Jews? Now I'm asking you, think of who you are now. Who are you yourself? What is your being? Well, you are a human person with a human nature. You are a human person with a human nature. Which means then, and you know this already by just observing the creature of the order. If you have a dog, you know this well. There are things that are distinct between you and your dog and of plants. In other words, there are things that you can do that your dog can't do and that plants can't do because you are a human person. There's something unique to you that animals and plants don't possess. Now, we can say, what's this uniqueness? Well, it can be our intellect and will, which is, which is true. We are rational animals, right? But we also can say that, and hear me now, because this is like, this is everything. That with inherent in man, apart from the animals and apart from the plants, within man, saved or not, there is a potency within them. Within your nature, there's an openness to do something that animals and plants cannot do. Just because you are created in the image of God, and because you have a human nature, there is an openness. There is a, what's called, technically speaking, a potency that you have within you. Now, what's this potent? What's this potency? What 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 is this potency that's distinct from that that makes you distinct from animals and plants? It's simply this: for you, for your nature to be supernaturally elevated to be like God. 
That is the openness that you have that dogs don't have because dogs cannot be elevated to be like God. Plants cannot be elevated to be like God, but humans within them, even unsaved humans, have the potential within them for their nature to be graced to a certain extent to be elevated to be like God. <clears throat> Remember what the larger Westminster Larger Catechism question 39 says. What was, well, why was it requisite that the mediator should be man? In other words, why did the eternal son come? Here's their answer. It was requisite that the media should be man, that he might advance our nature. So even within the Reformed tradition, they understand that within men, I mean, they're reading, they're reading the Catholic tradition, they're reading the church fathers, they're seeing, hey, within men, there's a potency to be raised, to do something and to be someone that you're currently not, to be supernaturally elevated. Now, what's this advancement of our nature? Well, what, is, what are we advancing to? Deification. To be like God. To be like God. Not to be an angel, but to be like God. The Bible speaks of this participating in God's nature. What does the Bible say concerning this? What does the Bible say? Um, I never do this. Is anyone cold? Can we, sh- maybe? It's very, it's freezing up here. Um, yes, and what I'm talking about does not help when it's cold. Um, so let's turn that down. That'd be great. <clears throat> what does the Bible say? The Bible says it's it. The Bible speaks about us participating in God, participating in God's nature. Revelation 21:23. Um, Pastor Antonio, I'm already saying this now. I got to preach on this. Um, and the city has no end of the sun or of the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God has illuminated it, and its lamp is the Lamb. We know that text quite well, right? Um, we don't need no. We're not going to need a, a, a sun or a moon. God's glory is going to be enough. So think of God's glory. Well, we read also in Matthew thirteen forty three. Then the righteous will shine forth like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. The one who has ears, let him hear. Okay, so what we have then is in Revelation, we don't need a sun or moon because God's glory illuminates everything. But also it says in Matthew that the righteous will shine forth like the sun. So there is a, there is a, there is a, there is a, there is a similarity of shining of the creature and of God the creator that exists. So what these two verses tell us it makes distinction between what is essential and what is derived. God is essentially glorious. But God also will give to us and share with us that glory. How else will we shine like the sun? So what we're saying is in deification, we will participate in God's own glory. We will participate in God's glory without, of course, becoming God ourselves. Let me give you another one. First Timothy 6.16, speaking of God, who alone possesses immortality. Amen. We all know that, right? But 1 Corinthians 15, 42, Paul speaking of believers, notice what he says. So also is the resurrection of the dead. What is sown a perishable body will be raised an imperishable body. God is, right, immortal, 
But Paul's also speaking of our, us being immortal. So then there's a similarity between our immortality and God's immortality. So what am I saying? We just, we just sung it too. In his life, we have life. So we then will participate in God's immortality. In God's immortality. Let me give you one last one. Um, um, uh, actually that's the end. <laughs> but, so what, what we are saying then, uh, from these, from these two verses, and what the church fathers have said is that redeemed persons, they will be united to God in such a manner that they will share in God's own immortality, incorruptibility, and glorious life. That you will share in God's glory, in God's immortality, and you will be also incorruptible like God. Like God. That our nature, without ever ceasing to be human, will be supernaturally elevated to participate in, this is what's called the divine life. The divine life. You have right now saints of divine life currently. It just hasn't been actualized actualized yet. Why? Because you need your bodies. When you are raised, your body then will participate fully in the divine life. Why? Because you'll never die again. That is when then you will experience the fullness of divine life. Now notice um, what I said, saints. That humans will not stop being human in this process of deification. Um, here's, here's, here's an example that the fathers use. How can two things, how can two things, right? How can one participate in one thing without losing itself in the thing itself? Okay. Here's an example that they use. Think of, um, think of, uh, think of a, an iron rod, right? And think of an iron rod when it's meaning heat or fire. In and of itself, the iron rod does not have any uh, in any potency. Again, in and of itself, doesn't have any potency to, to to bend, to be shaped in a certain way. But once upon uh, once upon uh, meeting the fire, then that iron rod can turn into whatever the fire wants it to. You know, it can turn. I don't know what what metal what what you can do with iron rods, but you can do whatever you want with it. Right. When once the fire meets with the iron rod. So what we are saying is when the iron rod meets the fire, the iron rod participates in the fire's properties without losing its property of being an iron rod. Again, the iron rod participates in the fire without losing its own principles. It doesn't stop being an iron rod. It doesn't stop being an iron rod. So we can say that the iron rod itself never becomes a fire, yet it participates in every characteristic of the fire. So likewise, we can say that we as humans then, we then participate in various perfections of God without losing our humanness or ever becoming God. That is the full orbit of salvation. That yes, God, uh, we'll talk about that at the end. Um, let me give you a little bit more biblical basis before we come to a close. Um, what, what other, how, how, how else did the church fathers think of, um, this doctrine? Well, consider what Genesis says and the temptation of Satan to the serpent. We read in Genesis chapter three, the serpent said to the woman, you certainly will not die. 
For God knows that on the day you eat of it, eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will become like God, knowing good and evil. So Satan, um, you, you might ask, how does Satan know of this? Well, Satan also is a fallen angel, but that doesn't, doesn't mean that his angelic knowledge has disappeared from him. So in his angelic knowledge, Satan then is tempting Adam and Eve with something that they already know was promised to them, but also tempting them with something that they do not already possess. Right? So if I was to, Anthony, you looked at me, I gotta use your example. If I was to, if I was to tempt Anthony, right, with, um, um, with the best, uh, 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 rice and noodles ever made, and let's suppose that Anthony's never ate rice and noodles, that temptation is not gonna do anything to Anthony. Because he doesn't have an experience, or he doesn't, hasn't, he doesn't know anything about rice and noodles. So, with Adam and Eve, they exactly knew. They knew quite well in the garden what they were working towards. Beatific vision, creator Sabbath rest, but also an elevation of nature. Because we know that if Adam completed his covenant of works, what would have happened to him? He would have been supernaturally elevated in such a way that he would never die. But also, he would be confirmed in his righteousness. Adam knows this. Satan knows this. So then Satan is tempting Adam and Eve with the reward upon obedience. You will become like God. So then what was the allure of, of the temptation? It wasn't the fruit. It wasn't the tree. It was this, this promissory truth. You will become like God. You will become like God. Now, of course, we know that Satan was lying in the way in which they will become like God. Hey, become like God, not by doing God's will, but doing my will which is ultimately doing your own will. Go, go, go along the path of, of achieving a confirmed righteous status, becoming like God by doing your own thing. So we see then at the very early stages of Genesis, this doctrine of deification is laid out. I mean, this is, if, if Satan tempted Adam and Eve with being like God, then it must mean that being like God is the talos of humanity. That's what that means. That we were, that we were saved and saints, not just, not just the elect, but every single person was saved. No, every single person was created with a potency to be like God. That is why it's such a shame when people don't choose Christ. Because they're actually losing that which they were created for, which is the beatific vision. They're, they're losing the ultimate good. Second Peter 1, probably the chief text of this doctrine. After I say this, we probably can leave. To those who have received a faith of same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. For his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and excellence. Now, here's the verse here. Notice the words. Through these he has granted us, granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, 
so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. This is Second Peter chapter 1, verse 4. The precious promises that God has given to us, what is the what is the um, the telos of these? To be a partaker, participate in the divine nature. That is the reason why you were saved. To be a partaker of God. John Owen says concerning this verse, um, he thus communicates himself unto us by the formation of a new nature, his own nature, in us, and the same divine nature it is that is in him and us. For though the precious promises of the gospel, we are made partakers of his divine nature. And here it is. It is not enough for us that he has taken our nature to be his, he's speaking of Christ, unless he gives us also his nature to be ours. It's not enough for the eternal son, and we're going to open this up a little bit more in a bit. It's not enough for the eternal son to assume our humanity without also him giving to us a share in his divinity. That's what John Owen is saying. Um, Give me one second. My iPad is going a little bit crazy. John Calvin also says, if if, uh, you want to talk about this being in the Reformed tradition, John Owen, now John Calvin. Let us then mark that the end of the gospel is this, to render us uh, evenly conformable to God, and if we may speak, to deify us. John Calvin says that. But the real biblical data for uh, deification then lies in what's called this exchange formula. And this is the last of the biblical data, the exchange formula, the exchange formula. This beautiful exchange um, is between us and Jesus Christ. And the exchange goes like this. We gave Christ humanity. Christ gives us a share in his divinity. That's the sharing. We might think of the exchange formula. And yes, we, we can. Um, um, but it goes it, it, it goes further than what we normally hear. And that is, we give to Christ our sin. He gives to us his righteous robe. Amen. But there's more to that. Because by giving us his righteous robe, robe doesn't mean that we have a righteousness apart from also being incorporated and in union with the very righteous one, Jesus Christ himself. So by us receiving a righteousness is not of our own, we talked about this already, that we're actually receiving Christ himself. So what the church fathers have said is that um, Christ gives to us a share in his divinity and we give to him his humanity. Consider the words of Maximus Confessor. For by giving our nature and passibility through his passion, relief through his sufferings, and eternal life through his death, he restored our nature. We just talked about the restoration of our nature, right? Is what we need. Renewing its capacities by means of what was negated in his own flesh. And through his own incarnation, granting it that grace which transcends nature, by which I mean divinization. Beautiful text here. Beautiful text. And notice what he's saying. In, in Christ's suffering, he gives to us impassibility. Impassibility. 
that, that it is that you will not be unable you in heaven. The reason why you won't we talked about this earlier. The reason why we will not have to shed tears, right? And 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 go through suffering is not because of the place that we are in, it's because we will be unable to undergo. That's what a passion is. It's not the effect that is, man, you have the passion of love. It's not love itself that's the passion. It's the way in which you underwent receiving that passion. So you will not be able to undergo, there will not be anything outside of you or even within you that will allow you to undergo sadness. And even with Christ then, Christ dies for us so that we will never have to undergo death again, of course, after the resurrection. Relief through his sufferings. And notice here, eternal life through his death. We give Christ humanity. We're going to talk about this next week as well. We give to the eternal son humanity so that the person, with respect to his humanity, can undergo something that his divinity can't. Which is what? Death. We give Christ humanity so he can die for us. And then Christ gives to us a share in his divinity so that we can live forever with him. That's the exchange formula. And then also he says that his own incarnation, granting it that grace which transcends nature. Again, nature and grace. This This was a common saying in the medieval period that grace doesn't destroy nature, but elevates and perfects it. That's what grace has done to you, saints. How do you know that? Because you now believe something, your intellect is able to amen something that you couldn't amen prior. You have faith in something. So God has graced you to a certain extent. He has graced your mind to believe truths that many in this world don't believe. Supernatural truths. That there was a virgin who became pregnant. That on the third day, one rose from the dead. That yes, the eternal life is real. Those supernatural truths. That is why within us then, when grace is, when God gives us grace, um, grace, grace then, or rather our nature does, is not, is not, um, um, you know, trying to move grace away from itself, but rather it receives it, it welcomes it, it, and it opens itself up to be elevated. Last quote. Puritan John Owen, it is not enough that he has taken our nature to be his unless he gives to us also his nature. Now, also, I'm just going to read these off for you. Second Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Second um, Corinthians 8.9, though he was rich, yet for our sakes, he became poor so that by his poverty, you might become rich. The, the poor meaning Humanity, the richness being divinity. He takes on our humanity in its most lowly state and then raises us up to the richness of his divinity. You can think of it like that. Galatians 4, verses 4 through 6. But when the fullness of time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons and daughters. Notice, the consequence of the sending of the Son is so that human beings, who are not sons and daughters of God, 
may be supernaturally elevated to be sons and daughters of God. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 9 through 10. For God has uh, not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through Lord, uh, through Lord Jesus, our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether uh, we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Augustine says he accepted death from what was ours in order to give us life from what was his. We give to Christ death, he gives to us life. 1 Corinthians 15, 49 just as we bore the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Beautiful text here, right? But notice that we will not notice the image that we bear prior to us bearing the image of the Son. We bear the image of God. We don't lose the image of God. We're not Lutherans. We don't lose the image of God. We remain the image of God, right? And and and, and all of its all of its all of its uh, properties. However, it is marred and scarred and fallen. So the image that you had prior to salvation is the image of Adam after the fall. Now, what do you have now because of Christ? Christ has now restored your image. Now, when we say restoration, it's not just merely restoring your image to the image of Adam in the garden before he fell. God is not concerned or interested in putting you back in the garden and giving you the same image of Adam in the garden. But he supernaturally elevates our nature so that we're not in the image of the man of dust prior to becoming dust, but rather we're the image of the man of heaven. That is So when I'm talking about an openness for our nature to be uh, to be to be elevated. Well, that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 49. Image of the man of dust will transform to the image of the man of heaven. Um, when we talk about then deification, saints, um, what we're seeing then is that deification is not something that's reserved for the end, that you will be like God is not reserved for the end, but also deification is progressive. It's, it's a progressive starting now conformity into the likeness of Christ. How do you receive that likeness? I wish I had more time to talk about the sacraments and talk about all these other things and how which, and the virtues and how, um, this deification is, um, um, can be elevated within us. Um, but we can even talk about the preached word itself. Or when the preacher preaches God's word, God gives grace to us. What is that grace doing for us? God doesn't give grace just to give grace. He gives grace to conform us to the image of himself. We could talk about also the entirety of liturgy. The entirety of liturgy as well. And this is where, I mean, in many respects they're wrong, but at least they get this right, the Eastern Orthodox Church, is they believe within the liturgy itself, there is potency, there is power there for man to be elevated. With just the reading of the scriptures itself. There is grace given where God is working on us to be supernaturally elevated. Deification has begun now, saints. Your conformity to the image of God, to the image of Christ, has begun right now. As I am speaking even presently, right now, it's happening. How do I know this? Colossians 3.10 and have put on this, uh, the new self, 
which is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created it. Your knowledge is being renewed to the image of God, 2 Corinthians 3.18, by we all with unveiled faces, looking as in a mirror, at the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. That is currently happening right now. In closing, saints, what's the purpose of deification? What's the end goal? Why are we learning this? Um, well, not only should it heighten your view of salvation, that salvation is not merely just a legal declaration, but also it's transformative. That God is, God is not just interested in giving you a right standing, but also He's interested in, in, in raising you up, raising you up to be like Him. That's the full weight of salvation. But also the telos, the end goal. What's the end goal? Why do we need to be deified? First John 3, 3, 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared yet what we will be. Now, after learning of deification, tell me that this verse does not scream deification. We know that we, when he appears, we will be like him. Because we will see him just as he is. We will see him just as he is. Last quote in closing. Deification is not simply another expression for a salvation. The repair or of the damage done by sin. It is the final end of salvation. The attainment of the destiny originally intended for humankind that Adam had in his grasp and threw it away. It may be anticipated in some degree in this life, but never reaches its fulfillment uh, in the next, in the fullest possible union with, but it reaches its fulfillment in the next, in the fullest possible union with the incarnate word, Jesus Christ. We can think of it like this. The eternal son assumes our humanity. We are united to the humanity of Christ. Christ then gives to us a sharing in his humanity. But his humanity also shares in his divinity. So when we say, and when the Bible says, be perfect like your heavenly father is perfect, you will one day be perfect. As far as a creature can be perfected. And this is what happens in salvation. This is the goal of salvation. This is the present um, reality of salvation. And even now, saints, as we prepare ourselves at the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, what is Christ doing? He's giving to us his humanity. He's giving to us his person. And by giving to us his person, he's raising us up to be like him. That's the purpose of the sacraments. To grace us to a certain extent so that we may be like Christ.